You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio 3CR. And today we're going to hear from Anthony Lowenstein. He's in conversation with Jeff Sparrow. It's only a little bit of what uh, they were saying at readings on the 29th of June. It was about his book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, which has now hit the bestseller status amongst our democratic loving and leading Arotorua New Zealand compatriots. It's uh, uh, published by Scribe. It's out there, a uh, fascinating read. We're going to hear from uh, Sani de Swat. She's the uh, uh, Friends of the Earth Anti-Nuclear Collective Coordinator um, about the normalisation of nuclear and mi- militarisation in our schools and what teachers are doing at the moment to try and um, curb the enthusiasm for uh, such things in Victoria and in other parts of Australia. This is the week that was. Uh, we'll be uh, um, pre. Uh, co- we'll come after a chat with Katie Cawthorne, who is the director of a. An event that's happening uh, next week. It's at the uh, Circus Skills um, Centre down in uh, Paran. Did you know that there was a Circus Skills Centre down in Paran, NICA? It's uh, the second year's ensemble show and it's called Within These Walls. It sounds like a fascinating thing to get along to. Uh, After that, we're going to have an extended chat with Debbie Brennan. She's from Radical Women and it's a discussion about the uh, dealing with the rise of fascism, why it's happening, what its uh, attributes are and what's special about uh, our homegrown Australian fascists and uh, what... uh, uh, is a good way to fight them off and fend, defend our uh, uh, free-loving spirit in this uh, continent of Australia. Uh, <laughs> it'd be great when we get another name. I, I think it's fabulous when uh, now you say Rotorua New Zealand, that's the norm. Um, and uh, eventually I presume they'll sh- uh, shed the New Zealand, but who knows. Um, but before we get on, uh, I'll tell you an interesting thing that's turned up. Uh, it's about the uh, Julian Assange um, change.org survey uh, petition. It's a 
uh, petition update was put out by Philip Adams, who has been coordinating the efforts. Um, he has uh, let people realize, know that there's been 781,000 signatories to the petition for the release of Julian Assange. 200,000 of them are US citizens. And accordingly, he says, we are delivering the petition grief, uh, petitioned grievances directly to the President of the USA ahead of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's scheduled October visit. Uh, ABC News reports Australian parliamentarians are planning to travel to the Washington DC to directly do their best to free Julian Assange ahead of Australian Prime Minister Albanese's October USA visit. Apparently Senator Peter Wish Wilson is planning to ongoing and so is Barnaby Joyce, PM, former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. And uh, as uh, the letter from Adam says, I thought mm, maybe the guys that tabled this petition in the Australian Parliament could help carry it to respective USA government, congressional members, senators, public officers, president to free Julian Assange and to stop the US extradition of Julian Assange. The fact that this petition has over 200,000 USA citizens that are also signatories opens the door for our grievances to now be delivered to the president directly. So there you go. Um, things still move on. The Seamen's Union and the Waterside Workers Federation took part in the longest boycott in Australian history after Finochet took over in Chile. A democratically elected government was overthrown with the help of the United States. There are many Chileans in Australia who suffered torture, imprisonment and whose family members have been disappeared. We can't move forward as a society without healing these past crimes. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the Solidarity Movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall, this event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, on 3CRs your community radio station. As I said, we're going to hear from uh, Anthony Lowenstein in conversation with Jeff Sparrow. It's only a small part of the presentation that happened on at readings on the 29th of June. It's about his book, which is uh, doing another stir. Um, all his books uh, create uh, effect. Uh, the Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation around the world. And as I said, it's a bestseller in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Israel is not alone in having a defence industry. Israel is not alone in exporting weapons. But what distinguishes Israel from other countries is the centrality of Palestinian 
dispossession to its national identity. So what is it about that dispossession that makes Palestinians a laboratory for the export of repression? You're right. There are a lot of countries that have an arms industry. The US is the world's biggest arms industry. It's the 40% of the world's weapons are sold by our wonderful dear friend Washington. And they sell to pretty much anybody. Dictatorships, democracies. But the difference with Israel is that it has a permanent occupied people in its backyard and has done so for essentially 56 years since 1967 and 75 years since 1948 of a population which is occupied and essentially allowed, based on Israeli thinking, to be controlled. And over that period, both before the digital revolution and in the current era, there is a massive amount of tools and technologies that Israel is using. So in the modern era, we're talking about spyware, so-called smart walls, facial recognition, biometric data, all those kinds of ways that Israel does 24-7 to manage the occupation, to manage Palestinians. And I use the term manage, obviously, advisor, to control Palestinians. And it's incredibly effective. And I use that term again advisedly. It's effective because Israel has found a way to not just maintain an occupation, but to make it seemingly incredibly popular. Now, in the face of it, that might not be popular in this room, and you might think, if, for example, you look at the UN votes on this question, you have pretty much the entire world on one side. And the other side is US, Australia, bless us, Israel, Nauru, Micronesia, and Palau. So on the face of it, it seems like, God, the whole world's against Israel. But actually, that's not the reality at all. They're against it maybe at the UN, but in practice, so many of those nations are so desperate and keen to get Israeli technology themselves to surveil and repress their own peoples. And the fact that Israel tests those technologies on Palestinians, it's so-called battle test, that's the marketing tool. And that's how they sell it. And it works. Okay, you say in the book that one can't overstate the significance of defense exports to the Israeli economy today. And you quote one expert who talks about, we moved away from oranges to hand grenades. <laughs> so that suggests a process. So I wonder if you could talk through that. Was Israel exporting repression from the Nakba in 1948, or was it something that developed later? And if it developed later, what were the milestones of that development? I mean, you can't make much money from oranges frankly. And Israel, fairly soon after its birth in 1948, started developing a domestic arms industry, which initially obviously was to, in its view, protect its own population, and even in then, repress Palestinians. But pretty much from the 50s, so very soon after Israel's birth, there was a huge expansion of the Israeli defense industry to the point where they started selling and promoting their so-called defense experience to the world. This hugely accelerated after 1967, the Six-Day War, and very soon after that, Israel was clearly promoting itself as saying, we are controlling a Palestinian population in our backyard. We can teach you, other nations of the world, how to do the same thing to your population. So in the, in the 60s, and particularly the 70s and onwards until this day, as I show in the book, there's at least 130 countries around the world that Israel has sold defence equipment to, so the majority of nations in the world. 
And this is everything, I mean, it's virtually impossible to find a horrible regime that Israel has not sold it to. So let me give you a bit of a taste. Everyone from Chile with under Pinochet in the 70s to the Guatemalan regime whilst committing genocide in the 80s to Rwanda during, during the genocide in the 90s to Myanmar in the last years when it's committing genocide against the Rohingya Muslim population. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So on the face of it, you would think this is morally outrageous. How has this continued to happen? The arms industry, obviously, by definition, is amoral with everyone. It's the most corrupt industry in the world alongside the drug industry. It's worth trillions of dollars a year globally. Israel's now the 10th biggest arms dealer in the world. And in some ways, all those years of experience occupying Palestinians is what other nations wanted to copy. So, for example, you have in the 70s and 80s some of the Latin American dirty wars. Honduras, Colombia, Guatemala, the list goes on. They openly were calling for Israeli assistance. And I've cut in the book various quotes from Israeli officials and local officials in those nations saying, we want to get a bit of, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, we want to get a bit of what Israel's doing in Palestine for us. Because it's seen as being successful. And I use that term, obviously, advisedly, what successful means. But the, the occupation was being exported. And very soon, Israel realised... And this, didn't, this was a bipartisan issue. It didn't really matter if it was Labour or the Likud in power in Israel. It didn't make a damn bit of difference. This was a huge money earner. And Israel could be, and I see this in the modern era, as Israel's best insurance policy, in a way, because despite the fact that the political headwinds may well shift at some point in the coming years and decades, when you have so many nations around the world that are buying your defence equipment and want it and need it, and are demanding it, are you likely to be very critical of Israel when it matters? You're not. And when Israel, for example, is now selling in the modern age the most sophisticated spyware and so-called smart walls, you know, the fear, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book, apart from being a journalist and wanting to do an investigation into this issue, was almost as a warning to say that we are already, in 2023, we have more refugees in the world at any time since World War II. And that number is soaring. And what I fear is, as many, many nations, in Western nations in the coming decades, will have to face growing climate crisis refugees, resource wars refugees, they're going to have to make a pretty clear choice, including us here in Australia. Do we choose to build higher walls, metaphorically or literally, or do we welcome people in? And I think most people in this room know what is more likely to happen in many nations. And Israeli surveillance tech and repressive tech is a key part of a lot of nations already today infrastructure of keeping people out. And so the history of the occupation of Palestine, which as I said, and this is one of also what I wanted to discuss in the book, was that most conflicts in the world are geographically based in that country. So I spent a lot of time in the last two decades reporting on the war in Afghanistan or the drug war in Latin and South America, and those horrific conflicts, there's no minimising that, but they're mostly based in those areas, within those borders. The occupation of Palestine is now exported around the world. So what's happening in Palestine does not stay there. It ends up in a range of other places around the world, including here. There is a real sense that Australia today is buying Israeli 
hacking tools, a company called Celebrite. Most people might not have heard of it. Doesn't get much attention in the press. It's basically a tool that allows authorities to hack your phone, Android or iPhone. And it's used by virtually every government department in Australia, and it's used by Services Australia against welfare recipients. I'd like to think that would outrage people. Since we're writing about this in the last sort of month or so, since the book came out, I've been speaking about this in the press as much as I can, sort of almost hoping, stupidly, that someone might get upset about it and say, sorry, hang on, why are all these government departments using sophisticated Israeli hacking tools that are also, by the way, sold to the most repressive regimes in the world? Russia, China, Belarus and others. And it's mostly crickets. So Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, organisations within Israel have described Israel as an apartheid state. But a lot of people may not be aware of the historical ties between Israeli apartheid and South African apartheid. And in your book you quote, I think it's an ambassador saying that there was virtually a love affair between the security apparatus of the Israeli state and the apartheid state in South Africa. Perhaps you could talk about how that relationship developed and the extent to which it was driven by ideology or the extent to which it was driven by other factors. You know, that relationship I think is so important to understand today, even though obviously apartheid South Africa ended in 1994. And the reason it's important is it was partly a defence relationship. South Africa was desperate for Israeli weapons. And they also wanted uranium, which thank God they didn't get, to build a nuclear bomb that Israel was trying to assist them to get. Let's just hope that that never actually happened. But it was also an ideological alignment, that both nations saw their battles as a, a fight against barbarism. South Africa saw the fight against black South Africans. Israel saw it as a fight against Palestinians. And they shared each other's ideology. They shared this idea that they're on the front line of this battle for, I mean, they didn't call it white supremacy, but that's essentially what it was, in the late 20th century. And right at the end of South African apartheid in 1994, when the entire world, finally, had turned against South Africa, which country do you think was there right till the end? Yep. Israel. I was going to say Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, Australia was a wonderful friend of South African apartheid too, but we turned against them before Israel, of course we did. And Ariel Sharon, the former Israeli Prime Minister, went to South Africa at various points and often saw what South Africa was doing in so-called Bantistans, these black townships, mm. which were, for those who don't know, kind of quasi-self-governed areas, which obviously were essentially controlled by the white minority state. And he loved to do something similar in Palestine, which is exactly what we have today. So they're inspiring each other. And the reason that's relevant today, apart from the obvious, is that, as you rightly say, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, every single, every single Israeli human rights organisation, every single Palestinian human rights organisation, call what's happening in Israel and Palestine, not just Palestine, Israel as well, as apartheid. And in the end, the world made a long overdue decision that they were not going to tolerate anymore what South Africa was doing. Put pressure, about boycott, sanctions, all those other tools that ended up causing South African apartheid to fold. And I would argue that 
something similar needs to happen with Israel today. And of course the hesitation of many people, maybe not in this room, but in general is the obvious. Not wanting to be seen in some circles as too critical of Israel, not wanting to be seen as too um, disrespectful towards Israel, not wanting to be seen to be anti-Semitic. And anti-Semitism, of course, has been weaponized against critics of Israel, something which I don't talk about so much in the book, but I've talked about it extensively elsewhere, where anti-Semitism is real, and it's worsening, and it, it's, uh, there's no denying of that, and Jeff and I were just discussing that before we came here. It's real, and I, I, mean, I don't feel that much day-to-day -day now, but I see it often online, and often people write to me in the hope of, or the thought that they're being supportive of my position, but actually are not a big fan of Jews, which is unacceptable and anti-Semitic. But the problem is when you, as a supporter of Israel, or Israel itself weaponizes anti-Semitism, which is often what's happening now in many circles as a way to silence critics of Israel, you are delegitimizing real anti-Semitism. You make it impossible to fight the real anti-Semitism, which is real, it exists, both in Melbourne, Sydney, and many places around the world. So the apartheid South Africa-Israel relationship is important for people to remember now. That relationship is not simply in the past. I think the modern equivalent is Israel and India today. The India is the world's biggest democracy, self-described, the world's biggest population, uh, surpassing China this year. It is an openly Hindu fundamentalist state that discriminates openly and proudly against roughly 200 million Muslims. And since Modi became Prime Minister in 2014, because traditionally Israel and India were not massively close friends, but that has changed in the modern era, there's been a love affair between Modi and Netanyahu. And the reason that's relevant is that you have Indian officials regularly talking about how much they admire what Israel is doing. They talk about wanting to do something similar in Kashmir to what Israel is doing in the West Bank, namely, in India's case, bringing in huge numbers of Hindus from the main part of India to Muslim-majority Kashmir, similarly to what Israel is doing with Jews, bringing them into Palestinian-majority West Bank. And so it's partly an ideological alignment, also, I think, an admiration of Israel as a state that gets away with it, and ethno-nationalism, and this is one reason also I talked before about why I wrote the book, it's a warning that ethno-nationalism, which is what Israel is, it's an ethno-nationalist state, a proudly Jewish supremacist state, is, a, is inspiring other nations and groups around the world. There used to be apartheid South Africa back in the day, but is now countries like India and Hungary. And as I talk about in the book, the global far right. Let me finish on this point that it's disturbing and people might be a bit surprised if you often go to far right rallies, you see, with it's here, the US, Europe, you see the Israeli flag. Now, these are groups that traditionally don't like Jews, are anti Semitic, are Nazis, but love Israel. Now, why is that? Now, they don't like Jews, but what they love is that Israel is a proudly Jewish supremacist state and they want to create, in their worldview, a Christian ethno-nationalist state in Australia, the US, Europe, wherever it may be. And I quote in the book Richard Spencer, who's a 
very unfortunate idiot from the US and so-called alt-right leader. And he calls himself a white Zionist. And I think that's a really relevant and important quote to understand. He doesn't like Jews, but he loves what Israel's doing because he wants to do something similar in his deluded vision in the US. So the idea that Israel is inspiring people like that, and Israel as a state is not partnering with Richard Spencer, but they are partnering with far-right groups around the world. As someone who's Jewish myself, I mean, I'm non-practicing, but I'm Jewish, the idea that a Jewish state, 75 years after the Holocaust, <laughs> is partnering with far-right fascists around the world in India, and Hungary and elsewhere, it's not just shameful, but deeply worrying. It, it impacts all of us, Jew or non-Jew. Yeah, sure. That's Anthony Lowenstein, and uh, he was talking with Jeff Sparrow at a readings event, and it was around his uh, book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. Uh, it's uh, published by Scribe. Uh, you can get it at all good bookshops, the Palestine Laboratory. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. We're going to move on to normalisation of nuclear and militarisation in our schools. Just another light topic. We're going to have a chat with Zani uh, Deswat, uh, who uh, Zan Deswat, who's the uh, Friends of the Earth faux anti-nuclear collective coordinator, and uh, this is what she had to say about. Um, uh, teachers in Victoria and in other parts of the country who are really incensed at the uh, use of uh, competitions to uh, sneak in militarisation into our schools, make it into something fun for the students to partake in. The issue of uh, normalising uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear power in our schools has become a hot topic, hasn't it, with uh, the issue being brought to the attention of teachers and their unions of quite recently. Can you talk to my listeners about what's been going on? Yes, yeah, so this um, normalisation of militarisation and um, nuclear challenges in under the guise of STEM projects, so science, technology, um, engineering and maths um, has so it has been going on for a while but it has increased um, recently and at the moment there's a nuclear propelled submarine challenge that is marketed towards a year 7 to 12 and so it's basically getting kids um, into the pipeline um, and asking them to design a nuclear propelled submarine, which are basically um, killing machines, weapons of war. Um, and and this this is part of, of the bigger picture where, where kids as young as, as primary school are asked, are kind of groomed to, to partake in, in the military. So Friends of the Earth was approached by teachers who were raising concerns specifically about the nuclear propulsion submarine, submarine challenge. Um, and 
uh, Friends of the Earth has put out uh, a media release and teachers have been taking this to their union. And I've, as far as I know, um, several motions have been passed in different union branches in Victoria. And I heard that last night the AEU federal executive um, has has made um, passed a motion condemning the program. Well, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because on a whole lot of levels, because the education department actually has guidelines to say who it is they can take uh, sponsorships from, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And and what some of those things that they can't take sponsorship from are tobacco companies and weapon companies, and um, basically the STEM hub, which is one of the um, entities that is working together with um, the Department of Defense to, to promote this propulsion challenge is is BAE Systems, which is a, um, a weapons manufacturer. It's not just a weapons manufacturer. It's actually is being taken to uh, an international human rights court over issues to do with armaments in Yemen. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're taking to the to the UN over human rights issues. Yeah, and and potentially they they are involved in um, building the sub the nuclear submarines if they are ever to be built in Australia. So what you're saying is that they've got pecuniary interests in um, this particular promotional activity. A- absolutely, yeah, and and in this case, the Victorian Education department is is in breach of its own policy um, by promoting these actively on their website, we believe. Uh, well, it's in Victoria, but it's also South Australia, and I'll, you'll probably find it's in other parts of the country as well. Um, this yeah. use of um, financial support from large weapons companies in our schools. Yeah, yeah. I just know that Victoria's got a policy about it. I think Teachers for Peace has also worked in New South Wales with the department to have policies around it, but I don't know if, if any of the other states and territories have those. So but they it may be some. Yeah, so they sort of sneak, sneaked into the door. Uh, one of the things I was wondering about is it gives the impression that STEM, which is something that everybody's been pushing like crazy, has only uh, relevance when it comes to fighting machines. Which is unfortunate, no, because we are going to need for the transition to a greener and more livable society, we're going to need the brightest minds um, on on engineering and science and technology to help us make that change to to a, a more sustainable and regenerative society. Um, and And one of our concerns is that this is actually taken away from the change that we need to see and and drawn towards um, military and war efforts, which are destructive. We also feel that it really fails to acknowledge from a nuclear perspective the the devastating history around nuclear that Australia has, starting from the British atomic bomb tests um, 70 years ago, all the way up to uranium mining and um, trying to impose nuclear waste dumps on Aboriginal land, which all these activities have and continue to affect First Nations people disproportionately. So why do you think that the Education Department has been so gung-ho in this regard? Because they're actually publicising it on their website, aren't they? Yes, they are very actively um, um, promoting it. 
Um, I guess like the the whole government is is really um, pro. Like now that the AUKUS deal has been signed, is really um, preparing for war and and being quite straightforward about that. And I think that probably the education departments like are working together with defense departments are are like on on the same path unfortunately so when the teachers have come to you about this because you're part of the anti-nuclear collective at friends of the yeah. earth um this is about um grassroots action against this tide isn't it yes so teachers have come to us with concern that this is happening in their classrooms and that it's so explicit and, and even BOE systems is, is saying they are they want to create an extraordinary workforce and they're talking ADF careers is talking about like um the pipeline of of recruits that they need. And um so so there's been some real concerns from teachers that this will be taught in their classrooms and that the military agenda in the is is perpetuated in their classrooms for, to children, which is irresponsible and unethical, because it's children under 18, they they do not necessarily. It's it's built around positive brand association, and they cannot make those decisions um, as adults can. Um, so they're being groomed from a very young age on. So the the teachers have been taking this up, and they have been taking it to their unions. It's not just kids in seven to twelve. It's actually earlier than this. There's a yeah, yeah. What tell us about the primary school targeting? So the program that we know at the moment. So there's there's a few challenges. Um, so there's a, a Lego challenge um, that is that is ongoing. I think it's a yearly thing where kids um, are are kind of invited to take part of this Lego challenge, which is also um, run by by weapons companies and where weapon companies come and, and promote what they do as something exciting and innovative. But at the moment, there's a program called Beacon that's targeted as year uh, at year four to six students. And it's it's funded by the AA systems. And it's also under the, the guide. It's a little bit more um, less explicit focused towards AUKUS, but it's focused at lower socioeconomic um, areas and schools, which makes it really hard for schools also to say no to them because they, they, those come as well-resourced programs. But it is in, uh, quite insidious in the way it is targeting young children to have that positive brand association with military and weapons companies. The... Um sophistication of this uh, marketing approach is quite disturbing, isn't it? It is very disturbing, yeah, and the intentionality about it. Uh, is this something that's happening in other countries as well, or is it purely related to AUKUS? I think it is happening in other countries as well. Um, we had a meeting, uh, like a coordination meeting with some of the teachers, and um, one of the teachers was pointing out that the, the in Britain, teachers have been working on this for a long time, um, that this, this has been happening in their schools as well. So I'm, I'm guessing it this happens in more than um, beyond Australia. So there's been a number of... Uh motions put forward through unions. Um, so we, this is a watching brief, you're saying. What's the next step? Um, so 
Friends of the Earth has a few um, calls to action where it is uh, for teachers to take this to their unions and to their schools and talk about this because a lot of teachers are either not aware of, about this happening in their schools or don't know how to argument it. Um, and we're also asking parents to take this to their school boards and express their concerns about it. We also have uh, an email um, petition to the ministers of education to, to call attention to this and that letting people know that we don't agree with this military grooming in our schools. And I think that Teachers for Peace, who's been quite active on this, has, is, is taking this a bit further with teachers that were interested in a meeting yesterday um, to, to rally a bit more attention around this issue. You know, it'd be quite interesting if a union like the AMWU um, or the CFMEU decided that they were going to put forward some funding for a project in schools around uh, sustainable building projects or uh, um, offshore wind um, mechanisms, you know, that sort of thing. It'd be pretty Absolutely. interesting if they did a positive uh process like that and if there would be a negative reaction around that in amongst the mainstream media yeah absolutely i think i think that one of the issues is that there is a lack of of counters or alternatives to these programs and that at the moment so-called innovative and exciting um, STEM projects are are being very well resourced and funded by weapons companies and defense, but it has there's there's not many alternatives for the lower socioeconomic schools. So yeah. that would be great if if we can get um, unions or the government to to invest some some money in creating the workforce that we really need for a, a healthy future. And that's uh, Zainda Swat. She's the uh, foe anti-nuclear collective coordinator you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast The Boat presents three songs for 3CR an annual fundraising event that will see five community choirs joining forces to fill a night with song Friday the 15th of September 7.30pm at the Mark Street Hall 1 Mark Street Fitzroy North Enjoy songs and tunes from Living Out Loud, Sonidos de Alma Spanish Choir, Guarani Men's Vocal Ensemble, Carl Panuzzo's Feel Good Choir and Mixed Drinks with Therese Virtue. Come along and support your local community radio station. Tickets via the BWAT website, b-o-i-t-e dot com dot a-u or follow the links from the front page of the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got uh, Katie Cawthorn on the line. G'day Katie, how are you? Good morning, I'm good thank you, how are you? I'm good um, and we've got you on the line because you're the director of a show uh, that's on at the NICA which is the National Institute of Circus Arts and it's called Within These Walls. I, I was really fascinated. I, I didn't actually know that there was a National Institute of Circus Arts down in Paran. So it's good to have you on the show to tell us a bit about that, if nothing else. Yeah. Tell Thank us about you. that. 
Uh, well, Nike, yeah, Nike's been around for um, over 20 years now. <laughs> um, I'm a bit slow on the uptake, eh? Well, you know, if you're not involved in the, I guess, closely in the circus scene, maybe you wouldn't know. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a huge institution um, and we train... Um, circus artists really from all around the world. We, we're, sort of, we're the largest institute um, uh, of circus arts in the Southern Hemisphere uh, and we have a lot of national students. We have students from all around Australia and then, but we get a lot of international students as well um, training in all forms of circus arts, aerial, groundwork, um, manipulation uh, and they do a degree. We do a degree there um, for three years uh, and it's awesome. It's so much fun. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is, is that people who uh, use their physicality as a vocabulary, it's a whole other world, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, when, when you when you play a lot in that world, you it, it's much closer, really, to I guess um, our sort of animal instinct and our animal impulses, and and it can be very a really truthful form of communication. Um, because it, it comes down to that impulse and instinct um, through body language, uh, but it's honed a bit differently uh, through the circus body. But it's a great way of telling stories um, that are really sort of um, universal um, because everyone understand, can, can read body language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. That's what you do. You teach physical-based theatre-making. Yeah, essentially, yeah. My role is um, performance coordinator, so I, I really teach that, that um, live performance theatre-making side of things and, and the way to... Um, I, I don't teach the... the um, I don't train the, the circus arts themselves, but I train, the, the I guess, the execution of them and the delivery um, in terms of the performance quality of things and how we can actually pull put a lot of this physicality together to tell stories and to affect an audience. Yeah, and, and that's the reason for why we're talking today because there's a the second year ensemble show is within these walls. How did you... I mean, it's actually about... Uh, how we cope, I'll read the thing because it was nicely put together, within these walls looks into how we cope when the world around us suddenly changes and our ability to reframe our perspective to transform the ugliness of things into strangely beautiful expressions of the human condition. So it was nicely put together. Yeah. I, um, I disputed the divulge word, so I, I changed it to look, but... Um, uh, the reason why I bring it up is that uh, how did you get tease this out of your performers? Because they came up with the show, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, we de we develop it together. Um, and uh, my background is, is theatre making, but it's in devised theatre making. So um, I, whenever I'm working with performers, we work very physically on the floor. Um, I, I uh, do a lot of improvisation work with the uh, performers and sort of see what starts to come out, what sort of imagery might come out, what sort of themes might come out of that. Um, and this was something that started to come out of their work at the beginning of this year uh, when I was teaching them in a different unit. Uh, but then I sort of started to gather all these threads and bring them together and then feed in different provocations and, and do a lot of research search myself in the area. Um, and, and it fits beautifully, I guess, with the human condition because we're always... Um, having to face uh, uncomfortability in our life at uncomfortable moments and we're having to face challenges and fears all the time. But 
Equally, it's challenging to be a circus artist and they're constantly facing physical fear. Uh, so the two work really well together, that, that um, being a human in this world but also being a human who works physically through their body where they're, they're putting themselves at risk quite often. Uh, and so, yeah, we've, we've worked, you know, circus is a great way to be able to tell this story and it, it's, you know, inherently symbolic and it, and it gives us lots of room to use metaphor and allegory in the work. Uh, and and really an audience watching circus suspends their disbelief pretty quickly and can go along with the story pretty quickly, which is really lovely to have at our fingertips. Um, but, yeah, we've, we've done a lot of improvisation work and then, then sort of built that together into a thread that, that's resulted in this um, quite clear narrative, really, this story. Yeah, and... It occurs to me that because you're part of an institution, um, the National Institute of Circus Arts, you've not just uh, uh, employed your skills, but you've also employed um, the skills of uh, quite a, a, a high levels of uh, set, sound and lighting um, production, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have an amazing team of creatives. It's It, it really is a huge team that pulled this work together. Uh, we employ some um, really, yeah, high, very high-level um, creatives. We've got Eloise Kent, who has designed our set, which is epic. It's it really, the scale of it is unbelievable. Um, and Ian Moorhead, who, who does beautiful sound composition, and it just, tells this story in a way that we uh, it really brings it to life. Um, and uh, we've got, yeah, some beautiful lighting as well and costumes. And then there's also all the, the trainers, um, you know, who really are quite unsung in the process because they are there every day working with these students and, they you know, they work with them every day for years to develop their skills and those are the skills that we see in the show. They I often will go to the trainers and say, you know, I'd love a bit of work in this area and they'll, they'll take it upon themselves to do that work outside of our rehearsal time to ensure that the student skills are what we, what we, how we want to tell the story. Yeah, it's amazing. So uh, contortion, swinging aerials, um, acrobatics, yeah. all pretty amazing stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in awe. It's uh, quite extraordinary. Um, you're... It's going to be on, the season is the 13th to the 16th yes. and um, it's 7.30 evenings and there's uh, matinees as well at 2pm, uh, <laughs> two, two day shows, uh, two show days. Yeah, it's big, physically very big for them. <laughs> yeah, I bet you it is. And it's 75 minutes long, so it's all pretty extraordinary. Um, uh Tell uh, tell me how tell my listeners how they can book and uh, and anything else that you think is relevant. Yeah, well, absolutely. Just get online, nika.com.au uh, is where you can you can book. You just go to what's on currently, and it'll come up with, within these walls, and you can book online there. Um, we're recommending it for for um, ages twelve plus because it does. You know, sometimes it, it can not be scary so much, but there is. There are some um, moments of suspense in it um, that are probably best uh, read by minds who are sort of 12 years and up. Because mm. um, as it says, explores themes of anxiety, suspense and subconscious fears. That's right, yeah. But yeah. It is, it's, it's um, really, you know, 
quite physical poetry that we see on stage. So it's not realistic at all. Um, however, you know, there is this narrative that runs through it about the, the sort of the human who, who's um, having to having to confront their sort of fears and their what might they might call their monsters through yeah. this. Thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me about this. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, and that was Katie uh, Cawthorn from, uh, and she was talking to me about uh, from the National Institute of uh, Circus Arts, and uh, she's talking to me about the uh, second year uh, ensemble work called Within These Walls, and uh, it's uh, starting. Uh, there's a preview on the 12th, but the, the season's the 13th to the 16th of September, uh, 7.30pm evenings and 2pm um, uh, matinee, uh, nika.com.au forward slash performance. It's $18 to $40, uh, depending on where you fit in. Discounts for groups, families, concession and under 30s. Uh, general admission seating. It sounds like a, a real hoot. Um, really interesting. Oh, and also in uh, the place where it is, it's 39 to 59 Green Street, Paran. As I said, I didn't even know it existed. And last week I didn't get to play the whole of this, but this is a Dalida from um, the uh, National Day of Action for Forests that was held just before the uh, Labor State Conference, uh, Labor National Conference, sorry, in Queensland. Not that it made much difference, really, except that it was a bonding exercise for everybody and the fight continues for the native forest because uh, the Labor Party didn't actually do very much in changing its policies. But this is a fantastic rendition of, uh, of a very well-known song. Our next performer... Adelita, who is a, a modern rock icon. She has been uh, the front person for the uh, amazing Australian band Magic Dirt, but she's also been a voice who's been no stranger at forest rallies, whether it be here in, Tas in Victoria or down in Tasmania. She's, she's got a, a passion for our forest. I'm sure you'll all make her feel very welcome here today. Thank you, Adelita. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Look at all you legends. Thanks for coming out. Oh, my God. So great to be here. I love nature. I don't want to see it logged or destroyed. So, yeah, let's end native forest logging forever. Oh, my God. Shane Goen is here to help me out. All right, you might know this song. It's like a very famous song. So sing along if you know the words. We'll just make sure we've got some guitar coming through. Is the guitar coming through okay for everybody? Okay, here we go. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? You paid paradise, put up a parking lot. They took all the trees, put them in a tree museum. 
charge the people a dollar and a half just to see you. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away that DDT now. Give me the spots on my apples, believe me, the birds and the bees. Please, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Come on. Late last night, I heard the screen door slam And a big yellow taxi took away my old man Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you got till it's gone They paid paradise, put up a parking lot I said, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone. Come on. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Yeah, they paid paradise, put up a parking lot. I said they paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Yeah. Thank you. A week solidarity, Bricky team listener, when caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, said we had to oppose the voice referendum so we could vote for his referendum not to give Terra Nullius non-land, non-people a voice. Continuing his tactics since the referendum was mooted of going out of his way not to confuse the electorate. They won't miss having a you-know-like voice, he told us, because, like you know... They've never had one. And giving them a voice would divide the nation, Pete repeated. The referendum should be, like, called off because it is, you know, like dividing the nation. Good point, Pete. And uh, do you think there might have been a bit less division if you'd only said yes? Oh, but of course, that wouldn't be good caring business class politics. One of the better examples of polly-speak from State Public Transport Minister Ben Carroll Excuses asked about dropping promises to upgrade Western Metropolitan Rail Services to Melton and Wyndham Vale. The promise Ben explained was not a promise, but an evolving commitment. Whatever that means. He better, the state socialist, better better hope the people of Western Melbourne who turned against the government last election can understand it better than we can. Then again, the Minister for the Airline, which used to be our airline, Catherine King-Hitt, proffered reason number, I think we're up to 136, for rejecting Qatar Airlines. The strip search of women by Qatar, and and that would be a reasonable rejection, but for, King-Hitt then says Qatar is welcome to fly anywhere else in Australia except where it will compete with the airline which used to be. That does make a mess of reason 136. 
And this week, Monday, commemorates the tragedy of 9-11, to use the Americanism, September 11-hourism. The slaughter, the torture, the murders and persecution, as the good old CIA 50 years ago orchestrated the overthrow of an elected government and handed Chile 17 years of military butchery under General Pinch of Shit who avoided prosecution for war crimes for murder because of apparent terminal illness, incapacity, carried across the tarmac on a stretcher to be returned to Chile, and then almost running across the tarmac at the other end, showing the obvious cathartic value of long-distance flight. And if we're ever thinking of playing a John Denver song, remember Denver was seen in a documentary at a presidential palace garden party telling the camera how he loved Pinch of Shit because he got rid of the commies. On the positive side, the US of the UN of the US of the world has obviously seen the error of its ways, regrets its heinous war crimes, as it now too holds huge commemorations on 9-11. Shame, too, the socialist government recognised Pinch of Shit as the legitimate government, while the ACTU Supremo Nuclear Hawk himself and the Wheat Board with government support attempted for those 17 years to have the maritime unions lift their boycott of Chile, which, to their credit, the union's credit, they maintained throughout. As a by-the-by, that photo last week of former U.S. Ob Supremo Donald Trump or the poor gives a whole new meaning to the term mugshot. On the theme of mindless enforcers, little competition. Pick the redundant word. Headline this week. UK cops sexist racist. Sexist racist in quotation marks. And the answer? Oh, you're okay. It's obvious. UK. Cops sexist racist sums it up. A review in Britain, we'd suggest a totally unnecessary review, found cops were racist, sexist and homophobic. Gee, who would have thought? Back here, there's an inquiry into the cosy relationship between the, sorry, the coppers and the Nazis at that infamous event at Parliament House. Again, why hold an inquiry when we all know like attracts like? Caring employers have yet again predicted the end of the world as we know it. Proof that one day the wolf really won't come. End of again, due to the outrageous greed of workers and evil unions complaining that new caring business class relations laws, same work, same pay, gig workers and casuals to be treated as workers with basic rights, making wage theft illegal, will cost the economy billions. Billions and billions, I think the poor dear said. And as we've said before, we can think of no reason for that figure other than having to pay those workers and provide basic conditions means they're now ripping those workers off by those billions and billions. That is, billions and billions over and above the normal wage slave ripoff. However, caring business class spokesperson Craig Bloated dismissed our infallible conclusion as fallible. Those billions are a cost to the economy, a further burden on caring employers who are already facing headwinds and difficulties. Uh, But bloaty, I said. That money goes straight into workers' pockets. They'll be better off. A cost to you, a a wage rise for them. Uh, This, Craig Dist, highlights their lack of concern for the common good. We have shareholders to think of, hard-working mums and dads shareholders while those workers think only of themselves, self, self, self. 
the billions the evil union paymasters are demanding from this evil union-controlled government is taking directly from the pockets of hard-working mums and dads shareholders. Oh, like uh, Anthony, you're a prat, Twitty Ray's Forest, uh, Gina Hardhart. Exactly, hard-working mums and dads. I thought it better not to mention to Bloaty that as the voyeuristic court battle continues in Perth, poor Gina might be regretting ever becoming a mum. Caring employers can breathe a little easier as the Senate, with caring business class shadow caring business class relations minister Macadia Kosh, the workers roping in the cross benches who clearly see unions as evil, has put off debating the legislation until next year. An inquiry into just how same work, same pay, gig and casual workers treated better, wage theft, a crime will crucify caring employers and therefore the economy. Michaela said this will allow her to travel around the country to hear from all interested stakeholders. Oh, workers being ripped off, Michaela. Gig workers, casual workers. I said all interested stakeholders. This work agreed hung a pall over the annual Resource Industries Minerals Conference this week with Profits Council Supremo Tania Constable Profits accusing the government of jeopardising the nation's economic future with laws that would make mining more expensive and less productive. There are already profound risks that are gathering pace. There must be, because Bloaty told us that, headwinds and things. There's always something, isn't there? And how can caring employers solve the problems of slow wages growth that so worries them if they have to pay their workers even more? That revelation that the unions are paying the government salaries when we thought it was the public purse, exposed by caring business class party economic guru Angus Tailings, has been confirmed by the ever-responsible editorial column of the Troublewazi Capitalist Review. The government is doing the bidding of the socialist union paymasters, including by making the operation of the flexible gig economy of the 21st century subject to the antiquarian rigidities of a workplace system born out of the capital versus labour class struggle of the early 20th century antiquarian rigidity can can we think of anything worse it would help if the deep thinking editorialist could tell us when the class struggle stopped being class struggle what part of the 20th century it's a cause of eternal sadness for caring employers that workers and evil unions for some inexplicable reason still think there is class struggle And a tragic loss to our lives, the departure of two great men who know there is no such thing as class struggle, therefore eliminating their lifelong attack on working people being defined as opposing class struggle. Yes, the airline which used to be our airline, Supremo Allen Joystick, leaving with his begging hands still out, while a corporate disaster lies in his wake, a revered national emblem reduced to a public relations disaster. Don't worry, Alan, the mess will survive for years while you enjoy your multi-multi-million golden handshake. And of course, deep-thinking shock jock Neil Mitchell will be a tragic loss, particularly presuming our listener like me never listens to him anyway. Our listener did ask me to raise Mitchell's departure, so a true story, not satire, but... 
Many years ago, Mitchell asked me to debate some freeway issue with the then caring business class state transport minister. And while we were waiting to go into the studio, Steve Price, another Mitchell-style shock jock who was producing the program, came out rubbing his hands triumphantly and boasted to the minister how the day before they had whipped up opposition to the Save Albert Park group, which was opposing the Grand Prix, and the phones were ringing hot with people attacking Save Albert Park. The minister joined in the excitement, the celebrations, and Price totally forgot I was in the room, or didn't care. But don't panic. Whoever replaces Mitchell will bring this same objectivity and balance to the role. As we said with the coppers and the Nazis, like attracts like. All the more reason to support 3CR. Back to those headwinds blasting through the thin fabric of the poor caring employers, including the New South Wales Socialist Government, increasing its royalty on the great coal behemoths, BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, Glen Rotten to the core, White Coal Heaven et al., by a crippling 2.6%. All for no stronger reason than the obscene super-duper over-the-top profits they're raking in. And worse... The new impost will apply from July, giving them a mere 10 months to consult their tax lawyers and get their act together. It also led to the usual display of their renowned impeccable logic. The increase would threaten the national economy, they always say that, and threaten investment in new coal mines. And wouldn't that be a tragedy? Then in the same breath, they called for speeding up approvals of new mines. That is, presumably, speeding up approvals of the mines whose investment is threatened. See? Real logic. Suppose it would be silly to ask, given all our government, as governments assure us they are committed to reducing pollution by nominated dates, how come they keep on approving new coal and gas projects at all? Obviously, part of their policy is to address climate change, if there is such a thing, reduce fossil pollution through the fossil solution. Speaking of fossils, finally, as India rebels in hosting the G20, with the filthiest rich job discussing world-shattering issues like how to make themselves even more filthy rich, a report by a human rights group says 300,000 of the poorest of the poor were displaced and rendered homeless as they spruced up the joint and kept the poorest of the poor out of sight. A version of Modi operandi. Good morning. Gas is a toxic fossil fuel, yet gas exploration by sonic explosion is planned for the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting kills plankton and deafens whales, disrupting their migration. This blasting is opposed by coastal communities from Geelong to Apollo Bay and Warrnambool who strive to protect the ocean ecosystems. Bring Whale Song into Nam City, Friday the 15th of September at Queen's Bridge near Flinders Street at 4.30pm and onto the State Library for 5.30pm. Rally for Whale Song Not Gas is hosted by Extinction Rebellion, a 3CR supporter. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your dial. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Debbie Brennan on the line. She's from the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women. G'day, Debbie, how are you? 
I'm fine, thank you, Annie. Yeah, and we decided we were going to have a conversation about the rise and rise of fascism within Australia. And uh, our starting point was going to be uh, actually a recent book that was put out, uh, Histories of Fascism and Anti-Fascism in Australia, uh, which actually talks about, gives us a historical perspective on um, the different uh, uh, waves and troughs of fascism. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an understanding of how uh, fascism raises its head at particular points in history rather than having a, uh, you know, an even uh, trajectory within a society like Australia? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a very important history for us to be looking at and actually understanding. And... Um, I guess probably to to kind of sum it all up, um, it 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 rises. It shows itself when um, you know the economy is in really serious trouble, as it is right now. It's actually disintegrating, and so um, it's a time when basically big capital needs to stabilize the economy again. And to do that, it needs to be reining in um, a workforce, the working class, especially if, if we are in, um, in either revolt or we are in, um, you know, a huge degree of resistance. So, um, but I think that we need to also see the difference between um, fascist groups, and again, Australia has a, a long history of fascist groups organizing, um, a di the difference between that and a fascist movement. Okay. Um, so I, I think probably that, that book that you mentioned could have gone further in looking at that and actually defining what fascism is. So, for example, um, today, we in the, pa in the past eight years, uh, we've seen fascist groups coming and going, um, and they've gone after different, you know, sections of the working class, whether it be uh, Muslims or, or now trans queer First Nations people and, and immigrants and so on. But we are not in a position of fascism, which is the building of a movement um, to bring fascism into power. And so, um, like, if we look back at Germany a 100 years ago, the working class there had actually had a revolution post, you know, just after the Russian Revolution. And it's no, it's easier to understand why it is that fascism took over there not long afterwards. It's there to crush the working class, absolutely enslave and literally crush the working class. So we got to make that difference between fascist groups, which are around us now, and a fascist movement, which is something we've got to know how to stop. Yeah, so what you're really saying is, the way you see it is that it's intrinsically connected to the capitalist project. Oh, absolutely. It's, um, it's a creature of capitalism. It's, um, we wouldn't have this threat 
without capitalism because capital will do anything and absolutely the most horrific things to save itself. Now, the uh, next thing, of course, is that part of the weaponizing of uh, dissent within the working class, which is uh, part of a fascist approach within capitalism, is sexism and mm. uh, racism. And that's what you've already indicated. This is one of the reasons for why uh, there's been this, since 2015, there's been this sort of um, enshrining, a uh, 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 frothing at the mouth approach towards transgender people. Yeah, you're right, and um, and it it we can we can kind of understand why um, the the hatreds and bigotries that that fascism feeds upon and and well fans um, is is so intersectional, you know, so we have seen so many targets um, of, of fascists. And um, the reason for that is that capitalism needs us all in our place. Um, it's set a place for all of us. So women, for example, we're supposed to be back in the home. And if, if, the, if the nuclear family, which is pretty much the the engine room of, of capitalism um, is to stay intact, then not only must women be at home, but um, there's no place there for trans people or queer people. They shouldn't exist um, if capitalism is going to run smoothly. It needs that, that traditional family, the male-headed family. Um, and, of course, racism, as you say, uh, is such a huge, huge part um, of, you know, fascist, uh, the basis of fascist attacks and hysteria. So that um, in, in Australia, for example, it, it's, we're, we're, built, we're built on racism. We were formed out of racism and dispossession of the First Nations people. So fascism had, and the far right wing, you know, whoever, they have something that they can always draw on. And we've had explicitly, the Australian governments have had explicitly racist policies like the white Australia policy. So yes, it's got all of that to draw on. And what's its purpose? Its purpose is to distract us. When I say us, I mean the working class, distract us from our real problem, which is the, the economic system. Um, and to divide us. Well, uh, actually, there's even more um, benign uh, versions of this white supremacy and cultural uh, oppression, which is the rhetoric of Western civilization in inverted commas, and extolling the culture and values of mm -hmm. the um, West is best sort of propagandists. It, it, they, you know, they seem like, uh, you know, reasonable voices, right? Mm. And that's common yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, and I think what you're hitting on is the, um, the, the, the fact that um, far-right rhetoric or out-and-out -out fascism, they're two different things, but still related, um, the fact that they can 
draw on racism and sexism and homophobia, et cetera, um, is that it's it's normalized. It's normalized in um, in 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 capitalist systems. So as you as you said, you know the the whole concept of a so-called Western civilization and so on. That's all considered as a fact. Um, and so once that's considered as a fact and a desirable thing, then um, you've got that, that grounding from which to draw. Well, you know, humans are, well, in a sense, extremists. We go from one, one extreme to another in our uh, conceptualization. And then there's this idea of reasonableness, which is in the center, which is the concept. And everybody wants to be reasonable, apparently. And the thing, too, is that, all, yeah, and all this reasonableness and whatever else is manufactured, um, it, it, it's all steeped. We, we, have, we keep going back to the, the economy because it's all steeped in, um, you know, private property. Um, that's considered natural and normal. Um, and the relations of private property. And so it... From from that, it means that some people are better than others, um, and on and on it goes. We know that ideology very well because we we're socialized in it, yeah, and that's right. we so it. yeah. So it's it's really it comes right down to the system that nurtures this stuff, and um, and and uses this to 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 keep us divided. So. Um, when we're fighting a fascist threat, w- we really need to know ourselves that we're fighting the system. Mm. Um, before we go on to what you believe is a way of fighting uh, this sort of uh, nebulous force almost until it punches you in the face, um, there is a difference, as you say, between some a, a group like uh, One Nation and a fascist organization. Yes. Can you explain that to people a little bit? Yes, yes. Um, that is something uh, to, to get some clarity on because they get so, um, uh, it gets muddied. And um, they share common characteristics. So, you know, like One Nation, for example, would be hard to distinguish in its racism and sexism and so on from um, a fascist group. So they, 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 they use that, and we can see that, say, in the freedom movement, so-called freedom movement that we've experienced recently. But the difference um, between the two, despite a lot of common features on, on the surface, uh, the difference is that fascism is actually a movement um and it's it it's it's based in in a class that's quite weak generally the sort of the the middle class shopkeeper um small business type um it's a movement that is there to bring fascism into power into state power just as it did in in Germany and in Italy and so um, the far right isn't isn't that kind of a movement, but fascism is a movement to um, 
to have that power in the state to enslave and crush the working class's ability to organize. So it means it crushes the move, a union movement. So, so, it crushes the left movement. Yeah, so it's got ambitions. It's very clear yes. about what it's doing. Um, exactly. And and uh, your view on the matter is that it's uh, there has to be a, um, a combined front of working class resistance. Well, yeah. I mean, this is where, again, we learn from history why it's so important um, and we call it a united front. It's um, it's it's of so everybody who's a target. It, it's it's a working class front, and um, and it can be any number of organizations. It should be a whole a whole spectrum of organizations which don't agree with each other on a lot of things, and that's fine, but. It comes together on agreed principles, and in this case, we're talking about fascism. You can have a united front around the housing crisis, too. You can have a united front around anything, but it's a whole spectrum of organizations um, who come together, and they keep their autonomy and their own political you know, programs, but they they come together around agreed principles that are arrived at democratically. And it's upon it's on that basis that we work together and it's a true collaboration. It means it means it's gotta be democratic. And um that is an amazing force. And of course it means that the union movement has to be a part of this because the union movement is where everybody who's a target um is already organized within the union. So that would be a powerhouse, and that's the thing that can actually nip all of this in the bud. If we were to do that now, we could we could nip this in the bud before a fascist movement could possibly um, get off the ground. If that had happened 100 years ago in Germany and Italy, fascism would not have happened. Your, uh, your group, uh, the uh, Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women, are hosting a uh, solidarity salon, um, a study circle, uh, Building Unity Against Fascism, Classic Marxist Writings. And it's going to be alternate Wednesdays for, starting on the 4th of October to the 13th of December. And the reason yeah. for why you're doing that is because being informed is being prepared, isn't it? Well, exactly, and that that and you you hit the nail on the head. That's precisely why we're holding the study circle. It's based on a nifty little book. It's a short little book, but it, it's um, it's it's such a, a compact analysis coming from Marxists um, who were in the thick of all of this from the 1930s. Up to the ni- from the 1920s, I should say, up to the 1970s in Germany, Italy, Great Britain, the United States, and um, so it's a chance to be able to do this this close look, this examining of what fascism really is, and um, lessons to learn, lessons from the mistakes of before, and um, 
and to know where where we can take this. And um, we learn what the force of a united front could actually be. So, yeah, we think it's a very important um, uh, conversation and study to have right now. And um, as you say, it starts on Wednesday, October 4th. It's six sessions on alternate Wednesdays, so it goes through to December 13th. Um, it's held at Solidary Salon, as you mentioned, but it will also be on Zoom so that as many people as possible who can participate can. And um, the book itself, it's based on that book, and that book is only $10.00. And you can get it from Solidarity Salon. So if anybody wants to get in touch, um, they can get in touch with Freedom Socialist Party or Radical Women. Um, I can, I don't know what's easiest for people to take in right now um, in terms of uh, emails. Um, no, no, that can, Freedom Socialist Party, they should be able to get it, get on board there. Fine. Yeah. Sounds like a Good, good plan. Yeah, good plan. And uh, the book that we're talking about is called Building Unity Against Fascism, Classic Marxist Writings. Um, and uh, the event, the uh, reading uh, circle, the study circle, uh, is uh, you can get the details about the Zoom as well as the uh, uh, Solidarity Salon, which is 113 Spring Street Reservoir. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Debbie. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Annie. Yeah, no, it's good. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Okay. You too. Yeah, and that was Debbie Brennan, Brennan giving us a, a little bit of a heads up on uh, how to find out more about and defend ourselves from a, a fascist threat. Dunbar Law's legendary trivia night returns yet again to light up the social calendars of the best and brightest minds in Melbourne. Come down to Richmond Town Hall on Friday the 15th of September to raise much-needed funds for the incredible 3CR. The night starts at 6.30pm and will feature awesome trivia capped off with a giant game of limbo and dancing. Get your tickets now, available on Humanitix on the 3CR website. I have to say, a lot of things are happening on September the 15th. I'm not sure they realise that there's a bit of a conflict. But anyway, by the by, uh, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Uh, we heard from Anthony Lowenstein. He's got a fantastic book out called The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. I don't know um, if it's fantastic because of the subject, but it's fantastic because it uh, divulges a certain amount of horror uh, for our eyes. He's done the work. He's done the hard yards. Uh, we talked to Azan de Swat from the uh, Anti-Nuclear Collective at Friends of the Earth about the normalisation of nuclear and militarisation in our schools and what uh, teachers, uh, members of the AEU, are doing to bring it to everybody's attention. Uh, Katie Cawthorn told us about a uh, event called Within These World Walls, which is going to be down at uh, the uh, um, 
circus centre. I'll just get the information because it's uh, pretty interesting if you ask me. It's on at the National Circus Centre in Paran and it's running from Tuesday the 12th of September to Saturday the 16th of September. Uh, you can find out more about it from the NICA, uh, the National Institute of Circus Arts, um, and I will put it up on the podcast. Uh, this is the week that was, and then Debbie came in from the uh, uh, Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women to illuminate some of the things that are uh, to discuss around fascism and also the upcoming study circle that you may be interested in. I will put those details on the podcast. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and we will go out with the wonderful Kutcher Edwards. Time is all I have. I see birds from up above Over walls I can't get past These feelings of desperation But I know that they won't last Time is all I have My past I leave behind Thinking out tomorrow That's all that's on my mind Dreaming of a place I'd rather be For it's not that far away Together with my friends and family Is where I want to stay Time is all I have My past I leave behind Thinking of tomorrow Beside me, our hearts will be together and our spirits will be free, free, free. Time is all I have. My past I'll leave behind. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.